behind, so you're not distracted. I'm very easily distracted. It's got this really nice ribbon page marker, which I need. The only thing I don't like about it is the font is like 0.125. So, <laughs> so even with my readers on, my arms are getting a little bit too short to, 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 read the, uh, to read the book. Because of that, I'm going to read from my phone, <laughs> on which I can adjust the font. So it makes it much easier for me to actually read what I'm, what I'm, what I'm looking at. Um, one of the things I really do like about this new Bible, though, uh, and this is a great help to me, at the beginning of each book, it tells you who the author is, about when it was written, and it also has a paragraph on the content, which is great because it's kind of telling me what I'll be, what I'll be reading as I read through the book. So rather than reading it ten times to understand the message, I can read it about nine. What, I, what I'd like to do is just start off with, with one sentence out of the chapter uh, for the lead-in paragraph to, to James. And it says, this book attacks the notion that becoming a Christian is simply a matter of ascending to a few spiritual truths without experiencing any real change in behavior or thinking. So what he's saying is, not only do we walk the walk, but we have to talk the talk, or talk the talk, walk the walk. Uh, it, it's a matter of, of not just reading the word, but living the word. So with that, I'm going to open up my electronic, electronic version, which was much easier at home this morning while I was practicing. <laughs> Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows, in their distress, and refusing to let the world corrupt you. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if, if, your favor, if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention to a good and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't the rich though isn't isn't it the rich who oppose you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name we bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when we obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is guilty as the person who, who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery, also said, you must not murder. So if you murder someone but you do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember, that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There is no mercy for those 
who have, sh- have not shown mercy to others. But if you, sh- if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. What, what, good is, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? What kind of faith saves anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no clothing or no food, and you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well, but you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless you produce good deeds, it is dead and useless. Hey, thank you, Mike. Appreciate you, brother. Welcome, Jason. Wow, we got a lot of jumping into today in James chapter 2. You know, this has been a tough week. Week of tragedy of hardship, a week that reminds us, as James, as as Scripture says, that uh, we are but grass, we are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, that that tomorrow is not promised, all we have is today. And as we jump into a passage like this, uh, you know, I was grateful that as we were going through the book of James, that when the events took place that happened this week in Las Vegas, that we were coming to a passage like this. A passage that really shows us what is the dignity of man? What does it mean to live a life of mercy and justice? A life that doesn't just consider its own needs, but rather is focused on the needs of others. A life that's not just internal in what I want and what I hope to get in life, but rather a life that sees people not as an obstacle or sees people according to what they on the outside appear to be, but rather sees people as God sees them and then responds to their needs Accordingly, See, James in chapter 2 is going to talk about a life of mercy. What does it look like to live a life that is driven by mercy and justice? You know, in chapter 1, James said an amazing, uh, gave us this amazing concept. And he said that the Word of God is like a mirror. Meaning when you look at a mirror, what you see is yourself. And that the Bible, what it does is it doesn't so much tell you what to do before it first instructs you on who you are. That before the Bible tells you what to do, live a life of mercy and justice, it's always going to remind us of who we are. And when we do not do the right thing, when we find ourselves showing partiality, showing favoritism, when we find ourselves discriminating on the basis of external factors, what it's going to say is not so much that your actions are wrong, you do not know who you are. And if you'll go back to your identity, a radical new self-understanding of who you are will empower a new kind of behavior. And so in James chapter 2, he takes us back and he starts to, to say, we need to look at ourselves in the mirror. You know, in times like this, when there are tragedies that take place in, in Las Vegas and other places in the world, It's important to remind ourselves of who we are. Because I think it's easy to see that the problems are out there. The problems are with these people. The problems are external to me. If we'd get the right people involved, the right people in power, then things would be right. And sometimes we see the problems in life as external to us and not internal. You know, Jesus said it this way. Before you go and address the speck in your brother's eye, Take out the plank 
in your own eye. Meaning that change, if change is going to happen, it has to start with us. Now see, if I first address my own life and I take the plank out of my own eye, what it allows me to do is to approach somebody else with humility, with compassion, and to recognize that as a fellow human being that has struggles just like I do. And see, when I address myself in humility before God, when I see myself as God sees me, and I recognize that my life needs to change, then when I move out towards others, I'm not moving out in a way to tear down, to destroy, but rather I'm moving out in a way that I'm a fellow servant, a fellow disciple, and I'm serving someone else to help them with what they struggle with. You know, as we walk through this passage, what we're going to see is not so much just what we need to do, but we need to see who we are and to see ourselves as God sees us. See, what does it look like to live a life of justice, mercy, and equity? You know, the Bible is a mirror, but the secular world also has a mirror. You know, and the secular world loves what James says in chapter 2. Because the mirror of the secular world, we know this, it says that racism is wrong, discrimination is wrong, favoritism is wrong, and that's what James is saying in chapter 1. Partiality, evaluating somebody on the basis of an exterior is wrong. The secular world loves what James is saying in chapter 2. But see, here's the disconnect, and this is where we need to jump in into this text, is that though the secular world says that discrimination is wrong... The secular world does not connect who you are with what you do. The secular world will not connect who you are with what you do. Because on the one hand, it says, hey, we need to value each other. We need to love one another. Show, not show partiality in favoritism. And yet, on the other hand, it says, we are nothing but a chance collocation of molecules. That when we die, we are no different than the animals. When the animals die and when we die, we're exactly the same. Now, we may be, we may have won the DNA lottery. We may be a higher form of organism, but in the end, the secular world is saying to us, we are but dirt, we are just animals, we are, there's really no purpose in life. But in the next moment, it says, however, let's value each other. Let's not show favoritism. Now, why should we not do that? Because the secular world is saying, because we told you, you shouldn't do that. What the Bible does is there's a consistency between who you are and what you do. And when we find ourselves showing favoritism, when we find ourselves discriminating, it's because we don't know who we are. And if we get back to who we are, James says it'll start changing what we do. And so he says in chapter 1, if you want to take out your Bible, or in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says that we should not show partiality. And he gives us this great picture. I love this illustration in chapter 1 where he describes these two individuals that are walking into an assembly just like this. And one, as James says, he walks in in verse 2 with a gold ring and fine clothing. And he comes into the assembly. But in verse 2, a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. So you pay special attention, meaning you see him, the man wearing fine clothes. But to the poor man who wears shabby clothes, you say, hey, verse 3, you sit here, or, or, or you stand there, or sit at the floor by my feet. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now that phrase, evil thoughts, means simply to 
to think in a false way, to think in a way that is broken, meaning to think in a way that is inconsistent, church, with who we are. Because see, when we judge people on external values, what we're saying is that we are the judge and we will oversee who has value and who does not. And James is saying, that is not our place. And certainly when it comes to external values, when it comes to what somebody owns or what somebody wears, what somebody looks like, where somebody lives, the culture in which they grew up, whether they're successful or not successful, he says when we start evaluating the worth of an individual based on exterior concepts, exterior factors. We've put our ourselves in the place of a judge. And the thoughts that are coming out of us are inconsistent with our identity. They're inconsistent with who we are. And so he says, do not show partiality. Instead, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, this is what it looks like to live an alive faith. He says that religion is that uh, God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You know, the Bible is very consistent. There's two evidences that you have a relationship that you're walking with God. One is that you live a life that is unstained by the things of the world. But the second is that you have a compassion, a mercy, and a desire for justice for those who are broken by the things of the world. That we have a compassion for the poor. A compassion for those who are the least, the lost, and the lonely. Those that do not have a community to which stands up for them or has the resources to meet the needs that they have. And so he describes this again in verses 14 through 17. On the one hand, chapter 1, he says, hey, religion that is alive, that is living, is a religion that cares for the least among us. And then he gives us this picture. In verses 14 and 17, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, I have faith, but does not have works. Meaning, hey, I believe in Jesus, I go to church. But there's no evidence of a life that's changed. Now, what is the evidence? So interesting. What is the evidence that James says is the evidence of saving faith? Well, I don't smoke anymore, you know. I don't drink anymore. I don't go to those movies anymore. I don't cuss. That's not what he says, is it? It's not all the moral distinctions in our life. Rather, he says the evidence of a life that has been transformed by God, that has met God as a life, as he describes, that doesn't see the needs of others and say, hey, I hope you have a good day. Looks like you're hungry. Hope that works out. I see you have no clothes. I hope you can find some tomorrow. I'll pray for you. Rather, he says, when you see your brother in need, the evidence of saving faith is there is a compassion, a desire, and a mercy to meet that need. Do you see that? When you see your brother in need, when you see the brokenness of the world, there is within you a compassion, a desire, not just simply to bless, but to actually meet that need, to do something. Because faith without deeds is useless. And so what James does, and I find this so helpful for us, is he doesn't just simply say, hey, you're doing the wrong stuff. You're discriminating against people. Rather, what he does in verse 1 is he reminds us why. Why is it wrong to show favoritism? 
Why is racism, discrimination, why is that so destructive? And then second, what do we do? So he tells us why, and then what do we do? We'll go back to verse 1, and notice what he says. He says, my brothers, show no partiality. And then he reminds us of our identity, because we are those who hold faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. You see that? Who are we? We are those that hold our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. So when that rich man walks in and he has a a gold ring and fine clothes, what he's saying is it's very easy to see the glory in man and not to recognize the glory from God. You with me? Listen, it's very easy to see the glory of man but not to recognize that all glory comes from God. And so when he says he walks in with a gold ring, what that gold ring represents is that man's glory. He walks in and everybody takes notice because here, in a church that is poor and broken, they say, hey, finally is someone who can make a difference. Meaning, hey, let's not love this rich man. Let's not get to know him. Rather, this is someone we can use. This is someone of power and influence. So let's treat him well, because if we treat him well, he may stay. He may make an impact. But to the man that walks in in shabby clothes, meaning he doesn't have the glory of man, he does have the glory of God, which one did we see? Did we see the glory of man when he walked in? No, we saw a security threat, right? We saw someone with shabby clothes. Someone to be suspected, someone that doesn't fit with us, and therefore this is someone whose glory doesn't match my own. And instead of seeing the glory of God in man, we see the glory of man, and our behavior towards that person is different. You see what he's saying? Why does he call Jesus the Lord of glory? There's a lot of names for Jesus in the New Testament. He could be the bread of life, he could be the door, the great shepherd. Why does James say that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory? You see, this word glory in the Hebrew is this word kavod. And it literally means to have weight. When something is glorious, it's weighty. Uh, It means that it matters, it has permanence, it has value in your life. And all of us invest into things that we find glorious. If money is glorious, we will pursue money. If beauty is glorious, we will pursue beauty. If nature is glorious, we will be out in nature. Because whatever you find glorious, you worship. And what you find glorious affects the behaviors in your life. And you will pursue. And what James is telling us is in Jesus, we have the greatest glory of all. That Jesus is the glory of God. As Hebrews says, he is the exact representation of the being of God. That in Jesus, we see the fullness of glory. We see who God is. And if we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I know this church knows the great commandments, then the second commandment follows. If we see the glory of God, then we have to see the glory of God in man. And we must, as he says in verse 8, we must learn to love our neighbor. Now here's the caveat, as ourself. If you were hungry, if you were naked, 
If you had no home, how quickly would you address those needs? I think I'd be on top of that one. Are you with me? See, if we love God, who is the God of glory, and God is all glorious, and His glory is in us because we're created in the image of God, then church, we have to stop looking at the glory of man, and we have to start seeing the intrinsic glory of God that is in each one of us. You know, the culture in which we lives, we lives, we lives. <laughs> it's constantly pointing out how glorious we can be. Or how much more glorious we could be if we bought the right things, if we wear the right clothes, if we have this certain kind of lifestyle. And everything in our culture is looking at the exterior. Now, it's telling us we need to not show discrimination. We need to value each other. But on the other hand, it's saying it's the externals that matter. James is saying, no, it's not the externals. It's the value that God has placed in us. And when we see the glory of God and we know that glory is in man, it'll change the way that we treat each other. Because we'll know who we are. And because we know who we are, we'll know what God wants us to do. And so what God is calling to us to, in verses 12 and following, he says, we need to live a life of mercy. Now, what is a life of mercy? Just quickly, I want to show, share you some practical ideas. What does it look like to live a life of mercy? Well, first of all, a life of mercy values the dignity of man. And we don't get to determine which man is dignified. You with me? We value the dignity of man, but we become judges with evil thoughts when we say this one is worthy of honor and this one is not. You know, I love, um, I love top tens. You with me? You know, a great top ten list. You know, you always see the Forbes magazine, the hundred richest men or, or people in the world. You love lists like that. Or you like to find out, you know, where does Evergreen rank in the best places in the United States to live? Yeah, I love lists like, like that, that, that kind of show us, you know, where do things rank? And, you know, kids growing up in school, they find early on that they have a, a ranking. You know, and their ranking is always based on how well they do. Have you noticed that? If you do well, if you behave well, if you act well, if you get good grades, then we start to believe that we are valuable because we have a higher ranking. And our ranking is based on what we do. And so within our culture, we quickly associate doing with value. What I do communicates my value. And if I do well, then I'm really valuable and people should care for me. But if I do not do well, then I am not valuable. And what James says is that value doesn't come from what you do. The gospel breaks that. Jesus Christ shows us we weren't saved because we did it. We were saved because he did it. And because he did what we needed to do, we are now saved. We're, we belong to God. The dignity of man is in man. God has created us in the image of God, which means his glory dwells in us. I love this in James chapter 3, verse Nine, he talks about why it's wrong to curse your brother. Why is it wrong to slander and to tear someone else down? And he says this, with our tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That when we curse man, we're cursing God. When we value a man on the basis of his external values, we are cursing God. See, James is calling us to see who we are. We have the glory of God in us. Let us value one another based on what God has placed there. 
And then second, a life of mercy values God's word. It's interesting, in verses 9 and following, he says this, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That when you differentiate, when you discriminate, when you show favoritism, he says you've broken the law, broken the law. But verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you've become a transgressor. Isn't that an odd list? Don't show partiality. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. I mean, that seems kind of disconnected, doesn't it? Why would he put that list together? Why would he put indifference to the poor, mercy, next to things like murder and adultery? Because here's the reality. We all pick and choose. In churches, we tend to align ourselves on certain commandments. There are churches that believe sexual integrity, sexual purity. That's what matters in the world. And we'll stand on those things. We'll say, this is how you live the good Christian life. You have to be sexually pure. But when it comes to indifference towards the poor, sometimes we don't speak as loudly or as passionately or as committedly. And then there's others that say, no, it's not about sexual purity. You can sleep with whoever you want, but it's about social justice. What James is saying is if we really have the glory of God in us, the glory of God is represented in all his commandments. And when we choose which commandments are valuable, when we start to choose, we put ourselves in the place of judges. And we say, this is what is right and this is what is good. And James is saying, when you look in the mirror, we don't have the right to evaluate. That if we think murder and adultery is wrong, then so also indifference to the poor needs to be on the same level. You see what he's saying? So often we see even the Word of God in ways that value what we value instead of valuing things as God values them. We have to allow our hearts to be examined by the Word. And then finally, the third thing that James tells us is that mercy will seek out the poor. It's interesting. In verse 5, he says that God has chosen the poor. Did you notice that? And I kind of thought this week as I was studying, isn't that wrong, God? I thought you said don't show partiality. Why are you showing partiality towards the poor? It says God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. Now, what does that mean? You know, to choose, the word choose means to move out towards. It means that God doesn't wait for the problems of the poor to show up in his neighborhood before he gets involved. That God seeks out the needs of others. God's eyes range throughout the world looking for those who are humble and broken by life. And you know what God does? He leaves, he leaves his place of glory and he becomes one of us. Bergen Park Church, who are the poor? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Though we may not be materially poor, we are spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus Christ, as Hebrews says, who is in the very image of God, he is the exact representation of the glory of God. And Philippians did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. But what did he do? He gave up that glory for us.
That he who was rich, as Corinthians says, became poor so that in his poverty, we might become rich. In Jesus, we see the glory of God. But in Jesus, we see Jesus giving up that glory for one who has nothing. For one who is, as Scripture describes us, spiritually pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I'm sorry, I don't tend to see myself that way. But see, I don't tend to see myself in light of God's glory, but man's glory. I'll just be honest. I tend to compare myself with others in my morality and how I do. But when you start comparing yourself to the heart of God, when you see the glory and the goodness of God, the only response, church, we can have is to humble ourselves. And then to see the generosity of God who sent His Son to us as a sacrifice for sin so that we might experience and know the glory of God. That's generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to how Paul describes what Jesus Christ has given us in His life, death, and resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Listen to that again. God has shown where in our hearts the light. That's not knowledge, that's experience. Of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is found in the face of Christ Jesus. You know, this week I was standing kind of up uh, near Rocky Village and I was looking back at the church and I was just noticing the permanence of the mountains. It was majestic. Do you realize that you are much more permanent than they? Because the glory of God that has been given to you is now residing inside of you. God's very nature has made you alive. And it came with the sacrifice of His Son. And see, if God was willing to sacrifice for us who are called enemies of God, why are we not willing to sacrifice for those who share the image of God, who share the glory of God, but who may just simply look different, talk different, or have different things. When you experience the generosity of Jesus pouring out His life for you so that you might know God, the only right response is to have mercy towards those who are different than us. You know, Jesus said it starts by examining the plank. How do I see myself? And I just challenge you today, how do you see yourself? Are you learning to see yourself as God sees you, as one in need, who is one is broken apart from the glory of Christ? If you do, it'll give you a compassion to start seeing when you see the poor. Not a problem, but an opportunity. And also in seeing them, realizing that's what I look like to God. When I see someone who is hungry, I realize that I hunger. When I see someone who is naked, I, I know that I needed to be clothed. And when I see someone who does not have a home, I realize that Jesus Christ came down and left his place so that I might be brought to the Father. When the gospel becomes real, when Jesus becomes real, we're not just morally pure. No, we live a life of glory. And the people around us say, you know, there is a connection between who they are and what they do. Because who they are is the glory of God. And what I see in what they do is the glory of Jesus Christ. 
But are we willing to humble ourselves and say, Father, would you help us? Help us on the one hand to open our eyes to see the needs of others, and then second, to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. Let me pray for you. Father, I confess it is, it is so much easier in this world of comparison, in this world where we are evaluated based on what we do and how well we do it, not to see the value you have already placed in man because you have created us in the image of God. Lord, how dare we devalue what you have placed inside of each man. Lord, it is so easy for us to see the actions of others, but not to see the dignity, not to listen, not to mourn with those who mourn, but to become judges with evil thoughts. Lord, we confess that what we need is to see your glory. Because as we behold the glory that is in the face of Christ Jesus, Lord, you will cause our lives to become more like the life of Jesus. He was willing to give up to someone who could give nothing back simply because he delights to glorify and honor you. Father, we love you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the opportunity to be a witness of your glory to this world. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond in worship.